0: Amen, amen. Good morning and welcome to King's Cross. Uh, My name is Clint Lee Pastor, one of the elders of this church. Lots of visitors today. We welcome you again to the college students who are here also. If you're back, we welcome you back. If you're here uh, in your first year, we welcome you to King's Cross for the first time. Also, just because I love her so much, welcome back, Miss Denise. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, It's been too long since you've been able to come. So love you, sis. Glad that you're here uh, with us this morning. Excited uh, this morning uh, to jump in back into a series in Matthew we haven't been in for a very long time. So if you visited with us more recently, you do not know that we've been in Matthew at all. We've been in Exodus this year. Uh, it's been a rich study for my soul. I pray and trust that it has been for years as well. But the rest of this year when I'm preaching, we'll be going from uh, Matthew's gospel and picking up in Matthew chapter 15 where we left off. Uh, And also with visitors, I do want you to know uh, this may be a bit, especially if it's your first time with us, you may step into uh, our church and realize, man, there's a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds here and even in our church service. Hey, there's, there's different cultural expressions of songs, of prayers, of, of, of the scripture preached, of how people are responding. Uh, we just want you to know this is what God does uh, when His grace and mercy brings people together. We find that we love folks maybe we had nothing else in common with because we have in common that we are great sinners and God is a great Savior and He brings us into a new family. So we're glad that you're here. We welcome you uh, visitors uh, to being with us and ask if you haven't already, again, turn to uh, Matthew's Gospel chapter 15 in your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, under underneath the chair in front of you, uh, if there's not, uh, maybe there's not yet, yeah, I think there are, uh, if so, take one of those as a gift uh, from us to you. Now this series in Matthew we're calling Authentically Christian, following King Jesus together, Authentically Christian. Now in an era that we live in where deconstruction is very trendy, very popular, I'm excited to look into the scriptures and say, what does authentic Christianity look like? What does it look like to be an authentic follower of Christ? Not just a cultural one, not informed by kind of just tradition, but actually when we go to the text of Scripture, the Jesus that has been revealed, what does it look like to be a real follower of the real Jesus, not a cultural follower of a cultural Jesus? Because really, who loves hypocrisy? (laughs) Nobody. (laughs) Right? I imagine I could put out a poll right now with two questions or two options. Option number one, I love hypocrisy. Option number two, I hate hypocrisy. And I would imagine 99% of people are going to pick option number two. You know there's going to be at least just one or two that picks option number one just to be obnoxious and mess up the poll. You know, so I know you're in here. I just want you to know I see you. You're here. But nobody likes hypocrisy. Nobody likes it when people claim one thing but live a different way. Nobody likes to be around one who's a hypocrite and, and lives in such a way that you can't trust the words coming out of their mouth. And in a lot of ways, this is a common complaint against the church of our day. Right? The church is full of hypocrites. Maybe that, you've heard that accusation. Maybe you're not a Christian, and, and for you, you're here, and you're exploring Christianity, you're exploring the gospel, but you're skeptical, if you're honest, because of this thought. I've always heard the church is full of hypocrites. I have sympathy for those who feel that way, have thought that way, maybe have heard that. In some ways, that can be true. There are many churches that really are full of lots of hypocritical people. That can be a true statement, and it's a particularly painful statement if that's been the experience. So maybe you've, you've had what some call church hurt. And you've been to a church, and you've been hurt by people who claim to follow God, but haven't followed him faithfully according to his word. But I just want to submit to you very gently and carefully, but honestly, ask the question, is the world out there any better? So it's easy to make fun of the church. Say, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. <laughs> like the world's not. Church pain, church hurt is a real pain, and there's a great sympathy that ought to be given for that pain, and it ought not be the case, but is there not also world hurt? So do we just leave the church? Do we just leave the world because there are sinful people that act sinfully and hurt us? Well, what if we're sinful, and what if we've hurt others? Indeed, what if we all have a little bit of hypocrisy in our own hearts? Then what? So again, I have sympathy But instead of letting hypocritical sinners drive us away from the church and away from God's word, why don't we commit to being faithful Christians? And by God's grace, a faithful church who who follows Christ according to the scriptures. A place where, because of the fact that hypocrisy is a human issue, not merely a church one, a place where people can come, human beings can come full of hypocrisy and meet the living God and be transformed by him and renewed into the image of Christ. And may our hypocrisy slowly die away and may our authenticity in Christ slowly grow by the Spirit. The church should be the place where hypocrites can come and be transformed by the grace of God to live an authentic, real Christian life. In our text today, we see both examples of hypocrisy, and humble faith. And there's a great contrast. Hypocrisy and humble faith. And ultimately we're going to see that hypocrisy is an authority issue. Like, If you have the wrong authority, hypocrisy is coming. You're walking into it. If you have the right one, by God's grace, you can walk in an authentic Christian life. And so I want to give you three marks of authentic Christianity. Three marks of authentic Christianity. Mark number one, the authority of the word. Mark number two, the centrality of the heart. And Mark, number three, the power of faith. Again, number one, the authority of the word. Number two, the centrality of the heart. And number three, the power of faith. Let's pray again and ask for God's help. And we'll jump into the text. Father, we come to you through Christ our Lord, by his blood and his blood alone. And by the power of the Holy Spirit asking, would you give us grace? Would you guide us into truth? Your word is truth. Would you expose the hypocrisy in all of our hearts? And would you lead us to Jesus, the one who lived and died, suffered and died and rose again for hypocrites like us. And in so doing, would you transform us by your spirit that we might be authentic followers of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. First again, the authority of the word. Our text today begins with a conflict between religious leaders from Jerusalem and Jesus. And this conflict is rooted in the the functional authority of the word. Jesus is going to expose this as the scribes and Pharisees are experts of the law of God. And they would claim that God's word is their authority. But clearly God's word doesn't function as their authority. So they're going to say God's word is my authority. But they're going to function in such a way that there's a different authority really governing their life. They've placed tradition over the word. And this is extremely relevant for us today. As we jump into this text and look at this reality, I want you to think and even pray right now and ask, Holy Spirit, would you help me? Help me to see who has functional authority in my life. Who's actually calling the shots in your life? Question pops up. Jesus, why do you break the tradition of the elders? Look again at chapter 15, verse 1. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, first, I just want you to note that the scribes and Pharisees normally enemies with one another. They don't like each other. But they have to link up because they don't like Jesus worse. (laughs) So they're linking up, and they come from Jerusalem to Jesus. So they're coming from the capital to have a particular confrontation with Christ, that they're united in this confrontation with Jesus. This is an official group, officially sent on a mission to confront this Jewish so-called Messiah, this one carpenter from Nazareth who's doing all these miraculous things and gaining this following. And they ask him, Why do your disciples, Jesus, these ones following you, they don't wash their hands before they eat. They're not following the traditions of the elders. Now, traditions are powerful. This is true for all of us. Rachel and I right now are in the middle of lots of premarital and pre-engagement counseling. This is one of the things we love to do together, kind of in in being in pastoral ministry, we often are in the middle of these conversations. It's fun to see two people fall in love and get married and kind of the process in between that reality. But i got to confess to you, one of the maybe guilty pleasures I have in all of this is that when two people become one, inevitably traditions are colliding. (laughs) So the two become one, and there's got to be some Christmas plans this Christmas. (laughs) And somebody's mama ain't going to be happy. (laughs) And so in the middle of this counseling, as we're having conversations and interacting, we begin to see when these traditions begin to collide. They might not even know where. No, 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 this is how you do Thanksgiving. No, 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 this is how you do Thanksgiving. And me and Rach can just sit back and kind of watch the free entertainment as they try to reconcile your traditions and my traditions. And now the two become one. What happens? There's also silly other little things like traditions that happen when two become one. Like where's the laundry supposed to go? In the floor or in the hamper? (laughs) Like does the toilet paper roll go from the top or from the bottom? Do you squeeze the toothpaste in the middle or at the bottom? There's lots of traditions that come in, and suddenly lots of conflicts. And again, it's a little bit of free entertainment as a pastor. Now, the tradition of the elders was much more serious than this, and therefore had the potential for much more conflict than early marriage fights over silly family traditions. And in this moment, the the tradition of the elders, there's a collision with Jesus. And the tradition of the elders was an oral record of the interpretation and applications of God's law. They can be traced all the way back to Ezra and Nehemiah when the, law, the, the, the scriptures had been missing and they'd been rediscovered. And now there's this, hey, we want to make sure that the law of God is being interpreted correctly and applied correctly to every single possible scenario we might go through. You can find this tradition of the elders later recorded in the Mishnah in the Talmud Jewish books. Now, the origin of this tradition, no doubt, had a very good motive to take serious God's law and to try to apply it meticulously but in doing so, some of their scrupulous interpretation and application went far beyond faithful obedience and formed this other competing authority. For example, if y'all remember in our study of Exodus, when we were looking at God providing manna from heaven, every day they were supposed to get the manna. But on Saturday, they were supposed to get enough manna for two days because they were supposed to rest on the Sabbath on Sunday. or the, For them, it would have been Saturday. They were supposed to rest on the, uh, the, uh, the Sabbath day. So they had to get enough manna, and they were not to go out. So we read in Exodus chapter 16, verse 29. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So listen, don't go out of your house. This is given. This is given for Israel, that they might understand this manna has been given, so we should rest on the Sabbath day, not work on the Sabbath day. But the Mishnah tractate, the Shabbat, details how you could give a gift to the poor without violating this law. So this last little phrase, let no one go out of his house on the seventh day. So there was debate among the elders. Okay, well, listen, what if a poor person needs something to eat? What do you do? Like you can't take a meal out of the house because that's you going out of the house. Now you're violating Exodus 16, 29. So you can't go out of the house and take them food. They can't come into your house and get food and then go out of your house because then they took uh, food out of your house. Now they broke the law. And so they would do all the scrupulous, uh, kind of meticulous details of, okay, so here's what you can do. You can go to the edge of the door, and they can reach into the house, and you can give them the food, and they can pull it out, and they didn't go in and go out of the house. Or you can reach out and give them the food, and they can take it, and you didn't go out of the house, so then everybody's good. So the tradition of elders had these kinds of like, rules about how to apply, apply the laws. And there were some 6, 613 laws. Can you imagine... The depth of what does it look like to obey every law in every kind of scenario. This is the tradition of the elders. And functionally, it was competing with the law of God. This document, this work, suddenly was competing with the law of God. And according to the tradition of elders, one had to wash their hands. Ceremonial uh, cleanliness had to be practiced before eating a meal. Now, this wasn't an issue of hygiene or because they were worried about getting COVID. <laughs> Like this was an issue of being, uh, making sure to obey the law and to be clean. Exodus 30 records that the priests had to wash their hands and feet when ministering. And the tradition took that and applied it to all people to make sure everyone was uh, there was no uh, ceremonial defilement, even in normal everyday life. And so Jesus clearly wasn't teaching his disciples they had to obey this. They weren't washing their hands. Traditions collide. Conflict pops up. And Jesus exposes the real problem. Look at verse 3. He answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you have, would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. And what an epic response of the Lord Jesus right here. He exposes their error, supports his argument, and then summarizes it in just four short verses. You're asking me why my disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why do you break the commandment of God? You want to have a conversation? Let's have a conversation. <laughs> like, Jesus is not intimidating in this moment. They're intimidating dudes. Everybody else would have been nervous. Pharisees and scribes sent out on commission from Jerusalem to confront somebody. Jesus is like, "Hold oh, look. Like, I don't think you understand who you're talking to. You're asking me about my disciples. You ain't even willing to confront me about it. <laughs> you're asking my followers. I want to ask you, why do you break the commandments of God? according to your own tradition. So he exposes this law of your tradition is suddenly competing with the law of God, and you're guilty of disobeying God in order to uphold your own tradition. Which is more important, the tradition of the elders or the commandment of God? And he gives support for his accusation by exposing their guilt and not honoring their mother and their father by claiming Corbin. Mark's account gives us a little more detail. Flip to Mark chapter 7, verse uh, 11, or it'll be on the screen for you. Mark 7, verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. So what do we see happening? Fifth commandment, honor your mother and father. Now these scribes and Pharisees are running around. There's a tradition of the elders that says, look, if you're a scribe or a Pharisee, and you're following and serving God, then you can tell your parents, look, you might need a crib. You might need somewhere to stay. <laughs> you might need some food. You might need some other resources. But listen, I'm serving God. Sorry, I, can't, I just can't do that because all that I have is given to God. And then keep that for yourself because you're in service to God. So Jesus exposes this. You're not even honoring your own mother and father. You think you're an expert on 613. You're breaking the fifth commandment. This is a simple one. You're called to honor your mother and your father. And yet here you are breaking the law of God because of these extra-biblical man-made Rules. It reminds me of a story I heard uh, about in a, a church argument years ago. So apparently there was a conflict going on in this church, and it was over some uh, yeah utter ridiculousness. But anyway, they were they were having a conflict, and in the middle of the conflict, somebody brought up, "Hey, like, but the Bible doesn't say that that's wrong," and the guy's response was, "Well, that might be Bible, but it ain't Baptist." Okay. <laughs> Okay, if you're in that church, you should cease to want to be Baptist. <laughs> like, but in the middle of a conflict, it's like, no, 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 There's a tradition that pops up against the Scriptures, and that man in that moment, in that fight, it's like, well, I don't care what the Bible says. I want my tradition. That's what these scribes and Pharisees are doing with King Jesus. And friends, when you get to that point, you've got more in common with the Pharisees and scribes than you do King Jesus. In authentic Christianity, nothing has more authority than the Word of God. Nothing. No traditions of man, no traditions of a church, no traditions of a denomination, no traditions of anyone has authority that can anywhere come close to competing with the Scriptures of God. And so Jesus says, for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the Word of God. You've taken your tradition, you've placed it over the very Word of God. And in so doing, you've voided out the authority of God's Word, the power of His Word in your life. Now, this is sad and scary because it's easy to do. The original goal, again, was to obey God. So this tradition of the elders, the original desire was to come up with it to help people obey God, not to help them disobey, and yet now it's being used to help people disobey God. This is what's scary about it. One commentator says the very tradition that was intended to help people keep the law of God could lead them to break that law. And have we not seen this very error in many of our churches today? I cannot tell you how many members have come and joined our church because of the spiritually suffocating air of extra-biblical legalistic church traditions, weary from all kind of extra-biblical laws placed upon them. Originally, I'm sure those were, had good motives, good desires, people hoping to help others obey God, but somewhere along the line, the tradition's authority became an equal to the word, surpassed the word, and then choked out the word in the life of the church. When the word of God has authority in a person's life, then there can be authenticity rather than hypocrisy. And that's what makes hypocrisy in the church so painful. Because this is the gathering of the saints is where we're supposed to find authentic Christianity. That's why it hurts so bad if you get there and there's a tradition that's trumped the scriptures and you don't find the real thing and the false thing hurts you. That's why it's so painful. Hypocrisy hurts. And this always ends up with people looking foolish. Foolish. You could say man-made rules leads to man-made fools. You create extra-biblical things. What you're saying to God is, God, you didn't clarify this stuff enough, so I'm going to help you out. That never ends well. God doesn't need your help making up new rules. (laughs) He's given us his word. Paul picks up this argument in Colossians 2, 23, talking about kind of this ascetic devotion. He said, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but there's no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man-made rules, no value in actually stopping the indulgence of the flesh, man-made fools. And we see this particularly, I'm sensitive to the fact college students are here and particularly thinking about the, the, the Bible Belt church culture. Often in church culture, it's like there's all these extra rules put on kind of kids growing up, then they go off to college and party their brains out abandon all of the rules, part of their brains out, feel guilty about it for the next decade, don't go to church for another decade until they have kids, and then they take their kids back to church and put the same extra-biblical rules, and we just repeat the cycle. Man-made rules, man-made fools. We need God's Word to transform us. He doesn't need help from us creating extra-biblical categories. We need to know the Scriptures. The Word must have the authority. Why? How does this happen? How does a tradition's authority functionally creep in over the Word? Verse 7, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandment of men. Jesus says this prophecy is true of the scribes and Pharisees. They say all the right things, try to do all the right things, but their heart is far from the king, even though their eyes are looking at him. Their mouth is full of praise while their hearts are full of vanity. They teach the Bible because they want status and power, not because they love God and people. They have robust doctrine but absent genuine devotion. They teach man-made rules as if it's the very word of God. So in this text, what we see is this connection between functional authority of the word and authentic worship. Where the word is authoritative, the worship is authentic. Where tradition is authoritative, the worship is vanity. This is, this is what we see. So I ask you this question. What is your functional authority? The Word of God or your tradition? What has governing authority in your life? God's Word or your tradition? And wherever you got that tradition from, your parents, your friends, your church, the popular culture, what governs your life, God's Word or something or someone else? What determines what's right and wrong for you? Now, and I would encourage you, listen to the authorities of your life. You should listen to your parents and your pastor and your churches so long as they submit to the Scriptures. But what counsel you get from those authorities, you must submit to the text. Does the text affirm or disagree? And where there's conflict, tradition of men or word of God, go with the word of God 10 out of 10 times. The church, ecclesia reformata semper reformanda, Latin phrase, the church reformed, always reforming. The church ought to always be evaluating all that we're doing, all that we're teaching according to Scripture. Does what we're doing, does what we think about church line up with the text? Reformers would use this to say, no, no, no. We, like there's never a moment where we, have, we stop doing this. Like, no, we got it, we're good. Because that's the moment when man-made traditions will creep in and take over. So always we've got to be going up against the text and seeing what the text says. Non-Christian friends, some of you may feel checked out at this point, because you don't think this is the word of God. I understand that reality, but my question to you is whose laws and whose interpretation of those laws are you following? Your own? Popular culture? Your professors, a political party, whose law are you following and why? What if they're wrong? How would you even know? How can you know? Jesus is the clear word of God. And he says this word is to be authoritative for those who follow him. This is basic, authentic Christianity. If you want fake Christianity, go where the traditions of man have more authority than the Bible. And there's all kinds of liberal and conservative options. Just go find whichever tradition you want, and, and you'll find uh, uh, traditions of man elevated. And whichever side you want, you'll find the fake thing, and there you will find hypocrisy. But if you want the real thing, go where people view the Word of God like Jesus. Second mark of authentic Christianity is centrality of the heart. The centrality of the heart. Jesus, as he often does, takes this moment in this confrontation as a teachable moment with his disciples and tells this little parable on the heart. So he's just talked about their heart was being far from God. Now he says, you know what? This is a good teachable moment for my disciples. Let me me talk a little bit about the heart. Verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Now in light of this conversation with the the, uh, scribes and Pharisees, you need to understand this is extremely offensive. So he's just said you are fulfilling this prophecy. And now he's saying they don't even understand how the human heart works and how a person even becomes defiled. So culturally, again, I want you to understand how offensive this is. This would be like walking up in a a fundamentalist church and and just stepping in and saying, hey, the pastor can dress however he wants to. And the Bible doesn't necessarily say alcohol, tattoos, or rated-R movies are bad. And just walk out. Like you have just dropped a bomb and there's going to be all kinds of fights. Or it's like walking up in a charismatic church. And kind of saying, hey, just so you know, you don't have to speak in tongues and jump and shout to actually be following the Spirit. Just letting you know the Bible doesn't say that and just dip out. Or you step up into Reformed Church and it's like, just so you know, good doctrine doesn't lead to zero emotion. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's not what the text says. And you can create, again, you can step in these contexts and create all kinds of conflict. That's what, like, Jesus has just created massive tension right here demonstrating these people who think they're doing it right. He's like, they're not even close. And let me tell you why. Let me talk to you about the heart. And he tells this little parable of the heart. And notice he offends, verse 12. The disciples came and said to him, do you not know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? <laughs> like, Jesus offended people. And, and again, I just, like, anytime a person prides themselves on their good moral or spiritual behavior, and they get confronted with the fact that their behavior does not make them acceptable before God, it's very likely they're going to be offended. This Pharisee is all about vanity, all about saying the right things, doing the right things, so he can feel proud and have prestige. Friends, if you think you're impressive, Jesus will offend you. If you think you're good because the way you do it's just right, you will be offended if you bump into the Jesus of Scripture. If you trust in your goodness over his, if you want the glory that belongs to him alone, he will offend you, and he won't lose a bit of sleep over it. He doesn't lose any sleep in this moment. He tells this little parable, and how does Jesus respond to the information that that was offensive to the Pharisees? Look at verse 13. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them all own. They are blind gods, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus says, look, God's not with their teaching. They weren't planted by God to bear fruit for God. They were planted by Satan to bear fruit for Satan. They're weeds, not wheat. They're poison ivy, not orange trees. Not gonna get anything good from them, and I'm not sweating it. I'm talking to you, disciples. I'm trying to teach you about the heart now. I'm having this conversation with you so that you understand where defilement comes from. Jesus tells his disciples, Leave those guys alone. They're like blind guides leading the blind. So, it's as foolish to listen to the traditions of men detached from the Word of God or elevated over the Word of God as it would be giving a blind seeing eye dog to a blind man. It's not gonna help. So, he says, These, these teachers are blind. They can't lead you because they can't see. Don't worry about them. Listen to what I'm teaching you. Ignore false teachers or they'll lead you to destruction. And even here, just a side note pastorally, Jesus called out false teachers. The Apostle Paul called out false teachers. The prophets in the Old Testament called out false prophets. This is why you'll hear us from time to time, if necessary. If there's a teaching threatening the health of our church, we're willing to point out a particular false teacher or false teaching. Because what a good shepherd's supposed to do is teach you the word of God and anything that contradicts that to point you and show you. But again, know that that's offensive to some. But when the word of God is contradicted, authentic Christianity must be willing to offend by standing under the word of God, not standing over it in judgment. So Jesus now explains the parable. Look at verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. I love this. I pictured Jesus at this point like, come on, Petey. Are you serious? Like, come on. Like, you've been with me. I've been trying. Okay. All right, verse 16. And he said, are you still also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I love that Jesus like, come on, Peter. I don't want to get graphic for you. <laughs> like, whatever you eat, the body takes the nutrients it needs and then passes it on. <laughs> Like food doesn't have like some kind of supernatural power to be demonic and make you evil. <laughs> That's his point. No, no, no. Your body will take what it needs and then pass it on. So, so it's not what goes into your body that makes you evil. That's not what's going on. No. Verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander, these are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So what is Christ saying here? He's saying those bad thoughts you had last night. They came from your heart. He's saying murder begins with jealousy or envy or covetousness in the heart and then becomes murder. He's saying that adultery and sexual immorality begins with lust in the heart. That theft begins with covetousness in the heart. That lying begins with a rejection of truth in the heart. That slander begins with hatred or jealousy of another in the heart. These are what defile a person, not to eat with unwashed hands. Friends, this is a game changer. Defilement happens not because of something out there, something in here. Your greatest eternal threat is not sin out there, but the sin in there. You need not be more concerned about what somebody's done to you as, as you are concerned about your own heart and what's going on inside your own heart before a holy and righteous God. Our outward actions flow from our inward attitudes. Our mouths gossip on what's in our heart. Our outward deeds tell on our inward devotions. What Jesus is teaching right here is revolutionary in the moment, but also in our moment. Friends, one of our greatest concerns right now in our cultural moment is that anytime anybody does anything wrong, the immediate assumption is we gotta figure out how they're a victim for what they did wrong. And listen, I'm not not trying to downplay We've all suffered through different things. Different people go through worse things than other people. And I'm not saying that doesn't impact us. But one of the concerns I have about our cultural moment is that we want to make everyone a victim and no one responsible. Everybody can't be a victim if there's not a guilty party. Like somebody's got to be guilty. And every time we see a kid, a toddler doing, throwing some kind of tantrum, it's like, oh, well, they're just going through a phase. They're just a victim of the terrible twos or the, the historic tornado. <laughs> or they're just, they're just teenagers. They can't help it. Like, like they're victims to some phase they can't control. Or we find out somebody does some evil deed and it's like what had to be daddy issues or upbringing or they, had, they were raised this way and they didn't get what they needed here. And it's like we can't make everyone a victim of everything. Somebody's got to be guilty of sin because there's lots of sin in the world. And so again, does that? Like, I'm not saying there's not victims. I'm not saying those, those victims ought not be comforted and encouraged and helped. But being a victim doesn't cause you to sin. You sin because sin is in your heart. How like One of the concerns about this is we're making people like they're robots, like they're slaves. Like you can't do anything. If somebody does something to you, you can't help it. You must do something sinful. You're not a slave to anything but your heart. And this is what Jesus is showing. Sin comes not from out there. It comes from in here. Defilement is not things that get done to me. That's not where my defilement comes from. That's where their defilement comes from. It might prove their defilement. But how I respond, whether I respond sinfully or not, because of what's inside me. Again, this is a concern. Every one of us is responsible for our own sin. And we'll stand before God on Judgment Day and give account. So again, I'm not saying you haven't been hurt, some of you much worse than I've ever dreamed about being hurt. And I'm letting you know the comfort is that person will stand before a holy and righteous God and account for what they did to you. You won't stand before a holy and righteous God and account for what they did to you. You'll stand before a holy and righteous God and account for what you've done to him and your relationship to him. Everybody's going to stand before God on judgment and give an account for their own life, not for anybody else's life. So Jesus is showing that our greatest need is a need for a new heart. That's authentic Christianity. The issue is I got sin in my heart. I need somebody to do something about it, and I can't. (laughs) Like this is why hypocrisy happens because hypocrisy is in my heart. I say one thing and I do something else. And again, to my non-Christian friends, you might be saying, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to follow the text. Okay, but you're following yourself. Have you not contradicted your own heart at some point? Has your heart not changed its mind at some point? Are you not fickle in your ways? Has your heart not left you confused? Where do you turn? Where do you turn? We need a new heart. Bishop J.C. Ryle puts it well when he says, what's the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart, Psalm 51, 17. What's true circumcision? Circumcision of the heart, Romans two, twenty-nine. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts through faith, Ephesians 3, 17. Friends, do you have a new heart? <laughs> that's the most important question for you to be thinking about right now. Do I have a new heart? A heart that's been transformed by God himself that believes Jesus lived for me and died on Calvary's cross for my sins in my place, including my hypocrisy, and on the third day he got up from death, demonstrating he was a Savior big enough to save a sinner as big as this one. And then in believing in him, I've been filled with his Spirit, and I have the Spirit of God dwelling in my heart by faith, trusting in Christ, walking with Christ, convicted of sin, confessing my faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Do you have a new heart? A heart that's convicted of your own hypocrisy, asking the Lord to change you. Or are you blind to your arrogant hypocrisy? And again, non-Christian friend, please hear me. I love you and care for you. Please see the danger of following your own heart. When you know your own heart's not even in the same place it was a week ago, let alone a couple thousand years ago. What does it look like and how do we get a new heart? That becomes the question. I'm glad you asked. Third mark of authentic Christianity, the power of faith. Now this next story is a bit confusing at first read, but it's beautiful when you see it in contrast with the hypocritical Pharisees and scribes and the very lesson Jesus is teaching about the heart. So he travels north of Galilee up to Tyre and and Sidon, which were pagan cities, and he has an encounter with a Canaanite woman. Now you need to know, Canaanites were traditional enemies of the Jewish people, and in this particular culture, it was even more taboo and scandalous for a Jewish male, particularly a rabbi, a teacher, to have a conversation with a female, let alone a Canaanite female, So, again, this is a taboo moment. The scriptures did not say that's the way it ought to be culturally. It's just the way it was. And in this moment, there's kind of lots of like, oh, my goodness, what is happening right now? Particularly when we're thinking about the scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious, kind of intimidating. They're supposed to have it all together. What is Jesus doing interacting with this Canaanite woman? This is the wrong kind of sinner in the wrong kind of place is what the Pharisees and scribes would have thought. Look at verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, O son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So just understand this moment. He's just had this conflict. He's just taught his disciples about the heart, the centrality of the heart. He's demonstrated the authority of God's word. And now suddenly there's this lady who comes out to him, crying out, interrupting him, O son of David. Oh, great Messiah, the one who I've been hearing rumors about. My child's possessed with a demon. Can you do something about it? And he address, uh, his address in response to her is a little bit uh, disturbing to us culturally. Like in this moment, again, there's this interruption. It's kind of taboo. But apparently she's gotten word. This Jesus of Nazareth has been doing incredible miracles. Perhaps she heard about when he cast out the legion of demons into the herd of pigs back, back earlier in our study in Matthew. Or maybe the uh, the man who was mute with a demon couldn't speak. Either way, she's heard enough to know this one right here offers hope to my child who's suffering immensely. He's the great one full of mercy, the son of David, the descendant of the great King David, a great warrior like David. Now, it's very ironic. This pagan woman who was an enemy of Israel is correctly identifying Jesus' identity when the scribes and Pharisees were totally missing it. And I'm not sure exactly if she knew how profound what she was saying was. The text doesn't make that clear to us. I just know what she was saying was profound. (laughs) She's identifying this is the son of David. This is Messiah. This is Christ. And she's understanding he's got authority like a king of kings, like the one who has authority, like, like God. And she's crying out to him for mercy. The irony of this moment is amazing. And so she cries out to the king. But Jesus' response is startling. Look at verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. Strange silence. Awkward silence. Cringy, even. We don't know why. It's a powerful moment where Jesus now is about to teach his disciples a lesson. But in this first interaction, silence. And in the middle of that silence, his disciples come up. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. Interesting. She cried out after him. And they're like, yeah, but we're associated with you. And she's embarrassing us. so like, she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so notice the disciples here. It's like, Jesus, this is embarrassing. Like, culturally, this is not appropriate. You're a rabbi. You're a Jew. You just ticked off all the scribes and Pharisees. Like, we thought you were like a rabbi better than them, and now you just made them all angry. And now here you are talking to a sinner you ain't supposed to be talking to. What, like, and, and Jesus not responding, they're crying out, so they're just like, I just, we don't even like, like, Jesus, do something about this. Often church folk get nervous when sinners come around Jesus. <laughs> get real nervous when it's like, no, no, this is like, this, oh, this is a lot of mess. She's, she's got a demon-possessed kid, she's interrupting, she's not supposed to be. It's just an awkward scenario, and so they're like, Jesus, do something about this. But notice what he says to his disciples. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His mission at this point in his earthly ministry was directed towards Israel. Now, we know that he's headed to a Roman cross. And that after he walks out of the grave, he'll commission his disciples to take the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Indeed, to the ends of the earth. But in this moment, he's got a particular mission. Going after the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But the woman doesn't give up. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him. Posture of bowing in humble worship as if before God, saying, Lord, help me. Faith lays its eyes on Jesus and bows before him, begging for mercy. Then Jesus finally answers. And again, surprise. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Time out. Jesus, that doesn't even feel nice, let alone politically correct. (laughs) Like, you don't throw it to the dogs. Like, Israel... uh, Referred to the Canaanites as dogs, as pagans, as dogs, and would use a particular Greek word that was talking about like wild dogs, not like house pets, but like wild dogs that were mangy and dirty. That's not the word he uses here. He does use the word that's more kind of a house pet, but it's still offensive. It's still like, what is Jesus getting at? Either way, it's an, an offensive statement that's re- revealing Israel believes this woman is the wrong kind of sinner. She's an outsider. She's not supposed to be a part of the people of God. She's a pagan. But one thing that William Barclay, one commentator, points out that's really helpful is we don't know what Jesus' face looks like when he says this. Barclay helpfully says, The tone and the look with which a thing is said make all the difference. Even a thing which seems hard can be said with a disarming smile. We can call a friend an old villain or a rascal with a smile and a tone which makes all the sting, takes all the sting out of it and which fills it with affection. We can be quite sure that the smile on Jesus' face and the compassion in his eyes rob the words of all insult and bitterness. So, again, I'm not sure what Christ's face was like. I do know he's teaching his disciples, he's doing something particular. But either way, I want to point you back to her response, verse 27. She said, "Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs can eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table." Then Jesus answered her, "O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire." And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, notice her humility in this moment. She's like, I ain't even tripping on the whole dogs comment. Matter of fact, I'm going to run with the metaphor. Like a house pet gets to eat the crumbs on the floor. Now, again, this can feel offensive, but what is she getting at? She's like, I understand who you are, and even the crumbs you give can heal my daughter. She's putting on display a faith like no other. This is a heroic faith. She agrees with him. Look, I'm not even being defensive about what you call me. I understand I'm sinful. I understand I'm outside the people of God. I understand I don't deserve your mercy. I'm not banking on my work. I'm not banking on my worthiness. I'm banking on your mercy and your mercy alone. I'll take the crumbs. This is a beautiful picture from this woman. Beautiful picture of, no, I agree with you and your word about me, and I still believe you've got mercy that can do something about it. From Jesus, crumbs are plenty. When you know who Jesus is, you'll take the crumbs. (laughs) You'll take them. Whatever I can get from him, I'll take him. And Jesus is rocked by her faith. He calls it great. So scribes and Pharisees who were supposed to be great, he's like, Y'all are whack. This woman, who's he's not even supposed to talk to, great is your faith. Great is your faith. This is the second time in Matthew that he's called someone's faith great. First time was a centurion, another pagan, whose son was healed by Jesus. So it's interesting. Twice he's called somebody's faith great. Neither one from the house of Israel, neither one from church folk, both from outside pagans who come crying for mercy, understanding, if you really are who you say you are, I'll take whatever you will give me. So what do we learn from this woman in conclusion? Number one, great faith agrees with Jesus' word. Jesus, I am whatever you call me. And again, we're all sinners. We're all qualified. There's holy and righteous God, and then there's sinners. So there's cultural moments, what Jesus is doing and why he's teaching. But understand, there is either I'm, I'm perfect as God or I'm a sinner rebelling against God. Those are your options, perfect or sinner. This is offensive. Jesus is not worried about offending. But he does want to save. He is all about healing. He's all about mercy and compassion. So great faith agrees with his word, but also great faith trusts in his mercy. It hey, trust, you're compassionate. You're the Savior. He came to save sinners like me. Sinners like this woman, sinners like you, you're that kind of God. You are the son of David. I'm not banking on anything in me. I'm banking on everything in you. And great faith, trust in Jesus' greatness. So great faith is not, look how much faith I got and how good my faith is. <laughs> great faith is, faith is look, look how great Jesus is. I know you're good enough. I know you can do this. I know you're merciful enough. I know you're compassionate enough. I know you're strong enough. I know demons ain't nothing to you. I know you can take care of them. I know sickness is nothing to you. You can take care of that. I know sin is nothing to you. You can take care of that. And we see his compassion if you just let your eyes skim down to verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked by the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain, sat down there. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them all the people that got it all together. More scribes and Pharisees? No. The lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. They put him at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Hypocrisy happens when we elevate tradition to the place of of authority over God's word. That reveals we have hearts of vain worship, hearts that are distant from God. Jesus reveals we need new hearts. And then he reveals the worst of sinners can be transformed and become saints, freely given new hearts by God himself. Knowing Jesus himself died on Calvary's cross. How does this happen? Because Christ died for hypocrites. He died for all us sinners on the cross and paid the penalty. And he rose on the third day so that we might have these new hearts that walk with him in authentic Christian faith. Loving and serving sinners. Pointing them to the Savior who saved us. Pointing them to the sinner who saved us of our hypocrisy rather than bashing everybody else's. So you got two options this morning. Hard-hearted hypocrisy or humble-hearted faith. Is your heart new this morning, or are you distant from God today? Has your worship been all about obeying your tradition or expressing affection to God for his grace and compassion? Do you feel like an outsider, like the wrong kind of sinner? I have good news. Jesus loves saving those like you. Look to him and be saved. Let's close in prayer. Father.